Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a senior fellow here at the King's Fund and I'm your host for today's episode. Now anyone who's seen or read the news recently will know that serious youth violence such as knife crime is once again making the headlines, not just in London but across the country with some people describing it as an epidemic. In some parts of the world, so I'm thinking Chicago in the States and also Colombia and Scotland, they've transformed the way they look at violent crime, shifting away from just treating it as a criminal justice issue to taking more of a preventative approach and looking at the root causes of the problem. And this has become known as the public health approach. In England, we're also now starting to look at the issue in this way. So in this episode, we'll be looking at violent crime and the impact on the health service, as well as unpacking what is actually meant by a public health approach. And to help us with this, I'm joined by some incredible guests who are experts in the field and have been working tirelessly to try to address the issue. But rather than me introduce them, I'll let them introduce themselves. So let's start with you, Martin. Can you tell our listeners a bit about who you are what you do, and how you became involved in this work. Uh, My name's Martin Griffiths. I'm a a vascular and trauma surgeon, and I work at the major trauma centre in the Royal London Hospital, where I've been for quite a long time. Um, I suppose my interest in violence comes from my background, really, friends and family being hurt and murdered, etc. And um, during my training and practice, I realised that as a trauma clinician, uh, we had a problem with readmission and violence and we failed to support our society and youth. So I put in place some programs and work with the community and with bodies to try and move that agenda forward. And as my in my role as a leave of trauma surgery, I'm trying to introduce a, that public health approach to bigger institutions and the NHS in general. Great, thank you. And I'm sorry to hear about your personal experience of that, Martin. Karen Please introduce yourself. So I'm Karen McCluskey, alongside a colleague of mine, John Carnican. We set up the Violence Reduction Unit in Scotland um, in 2003, mainly because we we had had enough of investigating murders and we no longer wanted to see parents who are traumatised through a loss of a loved one or indeed start to jail or continue jailing people who are never going to see the light of day for the next 23, 30 years. And we had the UN report that came out that said that Scotland was the most violent country in Europe and Glasgow was the most violent city. And it was time to do something different. And it also had some, um, it was incredibly successful as I understand it. Yes, um, success is a strange thing. (laughs) When do you get too successful? You know, 50 murders in comparison to 170 murders. It's never, it's never low enough. But, you know, we have reduced our homicide by 56% over the last 10 years and our violence by 57%. We don't differentiate between serious violence and violence because that's just crime classifications. Yeah. And so I don't talk about serious violence, I talk about violence, and yeah. it's only a crime if you report it to the police. And I deal with lots of unreported. Okay. Well, we'll explore that a little bit later. But so to start, let's unpack the problem. So last month, Sarah Thornton, who's the chairwoman of the National Police Chiefs Council, described the current situation as an emergency. And I know that um, the data is often disputed, I think, in part because a lot of it's not reported. There are some complexities around definitions. But I think even then, the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, has argued that even beyond that, the issue is on the increase. Um, But I also think it's important to understand the problem behind the statistics. So, Martin, what's the situation as you're seeing it in your day job? 
So my situation is slightly unusual in that I work in a hub for um, major injuries, so I see the worst of the worst injuries. And working in the, one of the four major trauma centres in London, yeah. we will see the most significant injuries that occur in the region as well as people who present locally. Mm-hmm. What we've noticed is a 20% year-on-year increase in admissions due to, due to interpersonal injury. And more importantly, a decrease in the actual age of patients. Our, our peak age is now 17. It used to be 27, 28 back 10 years ago. And more importantly, um, increase in number of injuries per person. So multiple injuries, collective violence rather than individual violence, yeah. and weapon choices of changes, move towards caustics, etc. Now, I know you can count however you like, you can count police figures, but we know that only 25% of the assaults we see are actually recorded as crimes. And you can look at London Ambulance Service numbers as well, or hospital admissions, but it doesn't really matter. From my experience as a clinician, the numbers are increasing, the severity is increasing, the intensity is increasing, and the youth of victim and perpetrator Mm. is is the compelling factor that I find most concerning. And are you also seeing revolving door syndrome in terms of people coming in and then coming in again? The revolving door used to be a feature of our practice when we, when we, before we instituted the program that I helped set up, and we yeah. saw we saw a thirty-five percent readmission rate within three or four years of initial wow. injuries. Some guys would come back with the same ID tags from mm-hmm. the, pre- the, the previous admission. So one of the ways of tackling that was to try and look at problem differently. We put together a uh, a program working with working with St Giles Trust. Um, and our and case managers looking at our patients, and we we were the first unit to bring in a ward based program that offered support, not just in the unit meeting you at the front door, but actually supported you back into the community and got a relationship with you, uh, your family, and with the environment around you. And we found remarkably that intervention as such reduced aberrant behaviour on the ward. It decreased readmission to spectacularly low levels, 1% rather than 35%. Mm. And our young people who had been under our care changed from being violent, aggressive outsiders to be inclusive, inquisitive young people who wanted to get on with their lives and engage with their families. Yeah, And it's an amazing change. So a total transformation. Absolutely. We'll come on to the St Giles's work in a little bit, but just before we do that, Karen, tell us a little bit about the problem you were seeing in Scotland when you started with the Violence Reduction Unit? Well, interestingly, not that different from, from what Martin was saying. Yeah. I have really close relationships with some spectacular trauma surgeons. I was an ex-nurse. I worked in the emergency rooms. And Alistair Island and Rudy Crawford, who were trauma surgeons within um, Glasgow Royal Infirmary, really just, you know, I used to go up there. There were constant stabbings. It was a wash. Our murder rate was really, was through the roof. And and the, the emergency rooms were passive receivers of the injured. They couldn't stop anybody coming through their doors. Mm. And people were waiting for hours and hours. You know, you had people with fractured necks of femur. And they were waiting because, of course, as soon as you get a young person or anybody that comes in with a really traumatic injury, they go to the very top of the list. Yeah. They, they take incredibly skilled surgeons. They take up ITU beds. And so there were secondary victims as well. So people get bumped off lists. Mm-hmm. And we had just had enough. And we had, um, you know, I, I talk about it, we had a, a 16-year-old boy who had been stabbed. And he had pretty much bled to death in the gutter. And this elderly woman had come out and she'd cuddled him whilst he died, crying for his mum. And I thought, this is it. This is our Rosa Parks moment. People just stand up and say, this is it, we've had enough. And nothing happened. We'd just become inured to it. 
And, you know, someone had said, I'd spoken to them about it, and someone had said, Ahib is all he was ever going to be. So they made a value judgment about a young boy Given up from, from, from an area of poverty yeah. who had, we think that life chances are created equally, and of mm. course they're not. And so we thought we... We just had a zeitgeist. I, I, I talk about this frequently. We had a zeitgeist in Scotland. I had the surgeons and we were, we turned them off as well because we, I was in the police. Mm. You know, we had a 98% of detection rate for, for murders. It was pretty easy. DNA, all these advances made it incredibly easy, but we had prevented not very much. Yeah. And we had a fabulous chief constable called Sir Willie Ray at the time who just said, go and do something different. Mm. So criminal justice alone wasn't working? Absolutely not. I mean, it's easy to fill the jails. I mean, you've done it down in England and Wales, and we've done it up there. And frankly, if that worked, America would have no crime. You know, it just doesn't work. And and the people that I was dealing with didn't care about death or prison because their families were littered with it. That wasn't, you know, you you can say... It's not a deterrent. It's not a deterrent. And so we really had to... And pick it, and it was mm. it was terrifying because you're starting something completely different, mm. and reframing it from a criminal justice to saying, how do we then prevent it, and and, and utilising a sort of public health preventative approach. So. There's been a lot of discussion about taking a public health approach to tackling the issue. So starting with you, Karen, in your view, what is a public health approach? It's just a societal approach to to tackle a problem, you know, and we used a very, it's incredibly simplistic, really, you know, we looked at the surveillance about what was the scale of our challenge. Mm. And through contact with our hospitals and some of our spectacular medics around Scotland, we managed to really look at the size of the problem that we had and, and some of the issues. And we knew all the risk and protective factors, but what we didn't know about was what worked. Yeah. What worked to reduce this? And and that is still an ongoing challenge. We got loads of things wrong. And then that scalability, how do we scale things up? Mm. And we just started from then. I mean, it took us a long time really to, to really just do that piece of surveillance work mm-hmm. in the first place because the worst thing that you can do is just start off without really understanding mm. the scale of your problem and involving those who are most involved in it and affected by it in your decision making. Mm. So I probably have got a team of people, I employ lots of people who've got lived experience. They absolutely shaped what we were doing mm. and were, were part of it. So it's, but it's long term. I think people think that there's a medical cure. Yeah. And of course, there is no medical cure. Yeah. One of the concerns I have at the moment, certainly in England, there's been a rush recently to embrace the public health approach by government. The approach has existed in the literature. It's been advocated by the World Health Organization mm-hmm. for some time. Um, it's public been, Health England. Public uh, Health England. The Department ago, yeah. of Health published a document yeah. on it in 2012. Yeah. And all of a sudden in 2019 or 2018, we're seeing a strategy and people talking about it at national government level. What, what do you think is going on there in terms of this sudden interest? Do you know what is really interesting? You know when I talked about the zeitgeist, sometimes you need a crisis to start people thinking differently because what we've done so far hasn't achieved the scale of the change that we want. So I think they're starting to look at other opportunities. The challenge is I've been doing this solidly from 2003 Mm. and there's tens of thousands of people right alongside me who are delivering this to there is nothing short term. Mm. It's taken 16 years for us to get to this stage. Mm. 
it has been relentless. And I think that whilst people are quite starry-eyed and they mention public health, they're less interested when I say, well, well, that's going to take you a decade, 15 years, really, to really drive it down. That's not to say you can't get short-term impact. You can. But to do the sort of primary, secondary and tertiary prevention and changing all the public norms, the social norms that go around this... It's a long-term endeavour, and it will go beyond the political imperative. It doesn't fit within a neat political cycle, right? But Martin, what were you going to add? To me, it's very obvious why things have changed. We started killing the right people. When it killed poor, disempowered, non-voting, unimportant people in Scotland and the poor of London, it was just numbers. Mm -hmm. It didn't really matter. When it killed the right people, like HIV, suddenly it became an issue. And when county lines became an issue, why is county lines an issue? It's not because the same people being killed. They're being killed close to where you live. Mm. Not not being killed in Hackney or in Glasgow. They're being killed close to where you live. And when you say the right people, what do you mean? So I mean it starts to... When it's the innocent, blue-eyed Girl Scout, that is an issue. Mm. And that tragedy affected that child and that family yeah. is the same for everybody else but the equality of victimization is very very different and it propelled the issue further didn't it into I think the it, media focus political focus you see what you see in your own eyes when you see something that you recognize yeah. somebody you can you can picture your child your friend your family member your neighbor mm. seeing that fate you change your attitude about things. Mm. And I think when politicians started to realise that this was not going away, the mm. numbers going in the wrong direction, it was starting to kill constituents and starting to affect the public's view mm. on their own safety, not on this, on their own safety, things had to change. And Martin, the unit that you've set up at the Royal London kind of takes a public health approach itself to the problem. What resistance did you face or did you when you were trying to initially set it up? It's really interesting, actually. The first thing I faced was indifference because we were treating the unloved, the difficult, young, angry young man who got stabbed who would come back again, a frequent flyer. And they, mm. they, did, they had no value, and their families were lower than this. Their mothers were terrible people, and their, and their fathers were absent. That was the, that was a general so they're be, belief system. They, they are valueless. They mm. are dispensable. They're disposable individuals. So to change the culture, great hubris about clinical care, but awesome at treating trauma patients. But treating the families, the injured patients, mm. big issue there. And what I said I wanted to do something about, I wrote a document 10 years ago about trying to reduce violence and retaliation. And, and I was politely patted on the head and told to put it somewhere and it would be okay. And it wasn't until we started to engage with third sector with St. Giles' Trust and to try and write business cases and plans that I convinced my colleagues it was worth a go. And I had very, 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 very strong leadership and support from the trust and from mm-hmm. my consultant colleagues who embrace this policy and decided to, to give this thing a go on our ward because this is a ward that's used to doing trauma really, really well. And to introduce a group of case managers who aren't clinicians, who aren't law enforcement, who have no tangible skills to see the most vulnerable patients mm. and allow them to dig into their practice is a huge ask. But the transformation in attitudes and behaviours by creating a longitudinal nurturing bond with these individuals and by supporting not just the patient's clinical care but their social care and continuing that care into the community for six months resulted in nothing short of a cataclysmic change in their lives. And our service changed because of it. 
we changed our culture, our attitude towards individuals, all of our patients, young and old, mm-hmm. injured, non-injured, domestic abuse, interpersonal injury. We changed our attitudes completely and we started to look after people. We went back to doing what we're supposed to be doing, not metrics, mm. not algorithms. We are in the healthcare business. And outcomes. And we we are we are here to help people yeah. be that physical, be that operation, to be that financial, be that supportive. It's about supporting capacity, aspiration, not resilience, because mm-hmm. life is hard enough as it is. And another label. What you need is someone to listen to you, to support you, to understand your situation and to help you move things forward. And by doing that, forget the label. By doing that and doing our jobs properly and doing and, to, and embracing the whole ugly task of trauma, not just the cutting, mm. we made a massive difference. So I, I heard you say there about, you know, forget the label and I guess the kind of essence of a public health approach being embracing the ugly task of trauma. If you were to break it down, what, what are the core elements around what is a public health approach? What would you say it is? Well, grief, that's a very difficult question because it's, it's so complicated. You know, we absolutely deal with the tertiary, and Martin has, yeah. has absolutely explained about yeah. those who, who come to us. And so I deal with lots of people who offend as well, you know, in terms yeah. of violence. But then also dealing with those who are victimised. And, and it's interesting that we love to have victims and offenders. Mm. We think they're separate groups, and of course they're not. They're a victim one week and offender the week next. And, you know, they're a patient, you know, for me, they're, you know, a suspect. Mm. And so trying to break that down. The second prevention for us was about targeting those who might be at risk. They are not hiding. It is incredibly easy. We we promote a zero exclusion policy in our schools in Mm -hmm. Scotland transformed some of the exclusion policies. You know, Glasgow's like reduced their exclusions by almost 80%. You know, and what we say is one less kid you you have out of school is one less kid I'll have not have in jail. Mm -hmm. It's it's a really, you know, it's so trying to keep kids in school. And then that primary thing, supporting parents and all parents to give their kids the best start in life that they can. Yeah. And and really just about well-being, because for well-being, you need your life to be predictable, understandable and manageable and to have a sense of hope. And for so many of the people that we serve, and we do serve them because both Martin and I are public servants, their lives aren't that. Their lives are in yeah. chaos. Mm-hmm. They are worried about getting stabbed. They live lives of their cortisol levels and their stress levels are through the roof. They are living lives that you and I don't live, yeah. mm-hmm. and you need to understand that that side of it. I think it's German, and we've done a lot of work in secondary prevention with the courts looking at young boys and girls who are at risk of what a better phrase gang entry, mm-hmm. primary prevention in schools, and going down to PRUs and going down to primary schools and talking about lifestyles and careers and talking to parents about being parents, about reading with your children, understanding why it's important and learning to read together, yeah, both parents and children and getting past that issue about the resentment that people have about their previous experience in life. Now, the the pillars of society are you know, law and law enforcement and you can't have laws without law enforcement. Mm. And there's healthcare and there's education and social services and these are, these are all agencies that are important but on an individual and on, on, on a community basis, there are things that we can do to improve those sort of things. But we can't change the hard metrics. We can't change the resource in lots of ways. We can redistribute things more appropriately and allow access. But what we have to do is empower our population to make sensible choices. Mm. 
So one of the things that I've heard applied to why this is treated in part as a public health approach is this epidemiological approach. So really getting to grips with the root causes, looking at the data, which is why the data is so important. Do you both agree with the description of violence as being like an infectious disease, an epidemic? Is that how you see it? Do you know, it's it's an interesting paradigm. So, I mean, I I see clustering in areas, Mm. so just like a, I suppose, like a disease model. We've not got to epidemic levels, although I'm sure that other people might disagree. When I speak to people, you know, you can see things like dose-related response, you know, how Mm. many times people are exposed to violence over the, the course of a life period. So it does apply to, I know it's not an infection. I know there's no vaccine. But it is a really interesting way to try and change some of the the paradigm that people see it because people occupy sometimes opposing moral universities. Mm. They want you to police it out of existence. And of course, that's because we framed us as a criminal problem. And those people as evil. And those people as evil. Mm. And and, and that is incredibly damaging and actually inhibits us changing this. Mm. So changing the paradigm invited everybody else in. So I work with the most spectacular maxillofacial surgeons because we have a huge history of serious facial injury in Scotland, um, quite unusual in comparison to to London, I think. Mm. Um, There's a bit of history and culture there. And so trying to frame it like that was really interesting for us and it absolutely shifted it in the minds of the public and indeed the press, mm. because I needed to get the press on side. Yeah. Because I needed to, st- so that, you know, instead of them saying, you know, putting a horrible picture on the front and saying he's just bad and he's to go to jail forever, we started to, to get them to speak about the backgrounds. Because every person that I meet in jail, their story starts with, see when I was five, mm. see when I was seven, and this see comes when I was eight. To, like the adverse childhood experience indeed. stuff yeah. as well, right? Yeah, and whilst there's loads of real argument about that, it is fundamentally about trauma. And then how that manifests itself later on. It's not to say everybody will be affected the same, but it's that understanding, not that what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you. And I think that's a great question to ask for anyone. And my colleagues in medicine and nursing and all the allied professions have been spectacular about it because the one thing the people that I serve, they really like health. Mm. They trust health. Mm -hmm. They have a relationship that perhaps I wouldn't have. And that what happened to you has been probably the biggest thing that we've really, you know, that's been a real sea change for us in Scotland. Yeah. I really struggle with um, this infectious disease paradigm because the people we serve are not infected. They're not diseased. Mm. There's nothing wrong with them. I hate the them part of it. And it's easy to medicalise it. We can frame it as a disease. We can, we can, and then it makes us, we can empower ourselves to think about it in that way. We can look at data dispassionately about numbers rather than people because if it actually was about somebody having a horrible life and being abused as a child that would that would turn you off to the whole problem but looking at it as a number as a, as a data point is making it much easier mm. and I can appreciate the power of that model but I struggle with the way it, it, it dehumanizes yeah. what is an entirely societal problem yeah. and I think we need to be brave enough to feel the pain and to feel part of the responsibility. Because we are all responsible. Yeah. We're the people who, sh- who close our curtains and walk away from these people who don't talk to these young children, who need, who are crying out for support. They don't give it at home. They'll find their education on the street. Mm. And we have all, all of us, turned our back on that mm. skanky young person who was scaring you a little bit on the tube or whatever. You, would, you wouldn't talk to them. You would, you would avoid that kid or what that kid put out of your class mm. because it's disrupting your yeah. kid's sats. 
isolate the problem. Or cut it out. Yeah. Cut out the badness and yeah. move forward. But then you have the fear, don't you, that either you'll be affected by it or it will infect your children. Contamination. And that's it. And suddenly we have this us and them scenario again, mm. which has reinforced this. We should embrace. Mm. We should embrace and accept this is a part of our society. And we made this problem, yeah. either actively by doing things or by passing by allowing other people to make changes in our society that disempowered our community. We stopped caring about people. So I take it that both of you are, in your own way, advocates of the public health approach. I know there's some opposition to the approach in particular, and I'm not sure that this is fair. Some people arguing that it's a, a soft approach and that it should be treated solely as a criminal justice issue. Just briefly, what would you say to that accusation? Oh, well. You? well, I've been in the police 23 years. You've got one of the highest prison populations down mm. here, as have we in Scotland, so we've not done that well, and, and that's my role now is to try and change that as well. It doesn't work if you just look at it as a crime because you just have to wait until the victims arrive at your door and then you do something. Mm. And that you can't police it out of existence because we've tried that. We've had some of the best of policing. I know that's a, a slightly contingent, but over the over the years, and I, I think some of the Scottish policing models, we were very engaged with communities. It hasn't delivered the change that we want. We need to do something different. Mm. And who's going to argue against prevention? I would rather prevent a murder any day than detect one. Yeah. I really would. I don't want to go and see another victim's parents. I had people last week. I, I don't want to meet them. And I know I will. Mm. But there is no joy. There is no joy in that. And, and all the television programmes that glamorise it and glorify it are just toxic. It's monstrous. It's monstrous. And um, you're right, they do glorify the macabre. If it worked, then America would be safe, as you said. Mm -hmm. And we, we can't police it out, and we can't pull by our out, and mm. we, can't, we can't, one single arm of treatment or intervention is not going to work. It is about embracing the problem and understanding the problem and living with the problem and understanding that we're going to have to change the attitude of our entire society. Yeah. And in a compassionate society, which is resourced, okay, we should do our best with our weakest. So you mentioned resourcing. In terms of impact of cuts to local authority services and their budgets, how important are those services and funding in terms of making this stuff work? Well, I often talk about smart justice. I don't talk about hard or soft. The government cake, in terms of how they slice it and dice it, doesn't get any bigger just because you, you salami slice it. I think what the opportunity of doing a different approach gives us is, is trying to invest in things that work and putting the money there. I will make myself incredibly unpopular now. In 2008 and 2007, when we had loads of money, people were throwing money at you. We didn't solve this either. Mm. Certainly not in Scotland. And I know that the challenges in London have got worse. Mm. The it's where you spend your money that's really yeah. important. People are always saying to me, oh, can, can we commission services? Can we decommission stuff that doesn't work? Because we do lots of things that don't work. Mm. And we need to fund the right things with a good evidence base, do a bit of innovation where it's needed. Mm -hmm. But this should be the biggest thing, really exercising governments at a very top level. And I know it isn't right now, but it absolutely should be. If people are dying in your street, it requires resource and appropriate funding and long-term funding, not year to year, which is what lots of our third sector partners who do loads, they're trying to survive on a shoestring. And that's just not possible. And particularly if this is long-term, you need to commit to... 15, 20 years. Mm. And that is the problem. 
three-year funding cycle for a, for a for third sector or four to five-year public cycle is never going to resolve the problem. The visible quick wins, that's why Southern Search and mm. S60s are, are, are prevalent. But we've got to invest in prevention. And the solution lies in childhood and parenting and communities. And we've got to build those strong communities. And we have to go back to rebuild. We've got to sow the seeds in the soil. We've got to support it. We've got to create communities which are effective and supportive. And then they will police. Mm. They will support themselves. We don't need to institute martial law in areas of, of poverty. We need to actually decrease poverty yeah. actually, and allow people to find their own way yeah. in, a, in a supportive and understanding society. And the more we polarise our opinions, the more likely we are to find ourselves in a worse state than we are right now. Yeah. Where these hard opinions based on zero logic, okay, both the left and right of the argument, yeah. make no sense. And it's about it's about negotiation and agreeing to disagree. And we're we're in, we're in times where the art of compromise is dying. Yes, absolutely. And we need to compromise on our own hubris, yeah. okay, and and trust the data. Yeah. Uh, could I mean? Could I just say it's really interesting though. I often find the truth doesn't set you free. Alas, no. it's saying to people that it's forty thousand pounds to keep a year to keep someone in jail. People are still say just build more jails. Let's just jail them. Yeah. And look, I'm no apologist. I, I, we need to jail those we're afraid of, but not those we're mad at. Mm. And we need to prevent much more. But there are people who do some really dreadful things for the protection of the public, need to be in secure establishments, and we need to try and rehabilitate them. Mm. But let's not kid ourselves that we're not spending lots of money in a criminal justice system that's not delivering the outcomes that people yeah. want. Mm. So we need to shift it elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. There needs to be some justice reinvestment, and that might be to health and to early years mm. and to other places. And we might just need to dry our eyes mm. because it works. So Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, has recently launched a consultation into a new legal duty that is intended to support a multi-agency or public health approach to preventing and tackling serious youth violence. And that would involve data sharing across different public service professionals, including health professionals, teachers and, and others. Martin, what do you think about the duty and whether it's right to be asking health professionals to report over and above their existing safeguarding duties? It's a difficult one. I think we know the data is hugely important, but the clinician's role and their place in society and with the public is paramount. Mm. We are a trusted profession. People invest their time and effort and their belief in faith in us. Mm. And if we destroy that faith and transfer information, information appropriately, we lose that relationship and we lose the one bond between society and population that is true and effective. And if, and, if, and if we lose that connection, that anchoring point, what have we got left? I absolutely, absolutely believe it's important to share data. We can anonymize it, mm. we, can, we can bulk it, we can look at traffic data, that's not a problem at all. And we can use that information to put in place great prevention programs and look at, look at metrics and look at how systems working and in the future we'll have an incredible amount of work with AI to help us predict models of, of, yeah. of delivery of care and preventative options but I'm really that's a slippery slope about reporting mm. things beyond what I think is appropriate mm. we're going to require a very careful negotiation between healthcare professionals law enforcement and more importantly the community mm. about what is what is fair what is yeah. just and what is appropriate yeah 
and how they see you because I guess it, it does it does kind of present a, in some ways an ethical dilemma to health professionals well yeah if if if, if, a, if a patient's got a, a gun in their pocket and a load of drugs that's a different issue mm-hmm. to somebody who admits to knowing something about an issue that doesn't is not related to this particular admission but might be useful elsewhere and I do not want to lose my patient's mm. trust yeah Otherwise, they stop coming. Not just them, but their children and their yeah. families become unwell. And then they present to me later with yeah. other injuries. Yeah. And it's not just trauma, it's medical problems. Yeah. And if you stop trusting your GP, and you stop trusting your health business, and you stop trusting your doctor, then what, what have you got left? Yeah. And, if, and if you don't trust the nurse and healthcare professionals around you, where do you go to for advice? Where can you, where can you ask confidential questions? And Karen, as part of your work when you were setting up the violence reduction unit, did that did you have a data sharing duty in place? Or? Yeah, anonymised. Anonymised. But, but not a duty. Yeah. We worked with consultants and, and others and we anonymised all the data. I wasn't okay. really, to be honest, I wasn't interested in knowing the identity or whatever else. I think Martin's absolutely right. Mm. People need to trust the health services. And Martin can interview and he knows that person. He can interview and he's doing that and right now. And you already now. are, yeah. And, and the, that's a bit, yes. it's about... You can't silo services anymore. That's yeah. like a that's set up for nineteen eighty three. It's twenty nineteen. We need to look at the problem and arrange it differently. Mm. And what we've got at the moment is an ingenuity gap with all the problems that are occurring and our ability to solve them. And that bit in the middle is that ingenuity gap. And we, so we're going to need to change, mm. and you know, enable partners and partnerships is always just about working with great people to do you know to intervene at that teachable moment when someone's on their bed who's in a cell who's in a jail cell, to do something different. So, no, we didn't have a duty. And I'm not sure that we would particularly have wanted one. Yeah. So to end, we've been talking about what can be done from a health perspective and taking a public health approach to tackle violence. What is the one thing that our listeners, many of whom are health professionals or working in local authorities on social care, in your view, could do to support this agenda? I would say look at your own practice. Everybody can do something. Mm. And not just as a health professional, just to be a good human being. I think it was Adam Smith in 1774 said that empathy was the glue that kept society together. I think if we thought about that just that little bit more, Mm. we'd all be in a better place. Listen rather than preach. Yeah. We need to listen, not just to what makes what hurts, makes pain go away, but what made the pain start in the first place. Why you're there in the first place? Why you're crying in your bed at night? Why you're wetting yourself? Why you've come back to see me for no good reason? Because there is a problem there that we can unpack. And if I listen to you, you will tell me. Because you want to tell me. And I want to hear now. So we need to stop preaching. Stop transmitting and start receiving. Because data's all there for us. That's really powerful. Both of you, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, that's it from us. Thanks for listening. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, there are a number of organisations that can offer advice, information and support. And you can find information about those organisations in the show notes for this episode. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And if you have feedback or ideas for topics you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, then please get in touch either on Twitter at The King's Fund or at my account at Helena Macarena. Hope you can join us next time.